Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, November 30th, the I Feel Red Pilled edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, a managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that we are having our annual holiday call-in show where we take questions from all of you. Some of you have been writing us on email fabulous questions. You can call them. We will answer them on the air. The number is 929-266-8195. That's 929-266-8195. Please call and leave us questions, something in your life you're not sure if it's sexist, or really just any questions you have for us. We would love to answer them. Okay. Actually, one more thing. We seem to have insulted some Alabamans. Can you say (laughs) that, June? Uh, Yes. (laughs) I'm going to read Kelly in Huntsville writes, I just wish that you all, I like the you all, that was like a little Southern schooling, would refrain from resorting to stereotypes of backwoods Alabama. These Cretans and their believers are all over this country. I I think I can sign on to that. Yeah. And I think uh, Kelly's letter made me sort of ponder the, or made me ruminate on the fact that we really get on the case. And, you know, I do feel like it's a, I feel very insulted by those people in Alabama who will support Roy Moore. Uh, Even before this current situation, he was a disgrace to the state and to America and to humanity. But the fact that he's won is what upsets me. If he, you know, if a state had only given him 49% of the vote, would that state escape my ire? So I take Kelly's point very, uh, I take Kelly's point. Yeah. Cretans all over the country. We can sign on to that. All right. Let's jump into our three topics. First, the lasting impact of the manosphere. We talk with Angela Nagel, the author of Kill All Normies, who has done a fabulous dissection of all things trolley online. Second, has this moment of sexual harassment reckoning tipped over into a sex panic? This has been suggested and we will discuss. And finally, we talk about She's Gotta Have It, a new Netflix series inspired by the Spike Lee movie of the same name from the 80s. And then in our Slate Plus segment, Noreen, bring it. In our Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk about whether our collective excitement over Meghan Markle's engagement to Prince Harry is, in fact, sexist. Yes, I look forward to that. I look forward to that. Okay. In her new book, Kill All Normies, Angela Nagel chronicles in exquisite detail the rise of the manosphere, the various internet subcultures where discontented men prepared and executed a severe backlash to PC culture, sort of resulting in the age we are living in now. It was shockingly successful and shocking. Like, it started from being a kind of edgy subculture to going mainstream. Um, So let's uh, dissect it. And we have here Angela Nagel to help us. Hi, Angela. Hi. 
all the way from Dublin. Are you in Dublin? Yeah. Um, it's um, uh, all right, five hours ahead here. Excellent. <laughs> all right. Just begin. Like, what is the manosphere? When you use that term, what does it encompass? And, you know, like, like what are the what just give us a little flavor of what are the different parts of it it's a a collection of all the different uh subculture political subcultures and forums uh, and things that are i would characterize them as anti-feminists i mean they they're typically characterized as men's rights but um in my experience they're actually much more interested in their opposition to feminism than they are in actual men's rights. So to me, they don't really resemble the older kind of uh, father's rights, kind of, um, you know, genuinely rights-based, um, like men's rights activism. They're they're much more interested in actually opposing uh, the gains of feminism. Why? Like, what does feminism ever do to them? Like, what? No, seriously, I'm not asking that as like a PC yeah, yeah. question. Just what is why is that an animating like, do they feel like feminism has stolen everything from them? Like, what is what is why is that what animates them? Yeah, they they feel that feminism has emasculated Western men, uh, that feminism has turned women into uh, difficult, unattractive, um, sexually picky um, <laughs> kind of women, like having women having all the, the, the power basically in, in, in relationships. And, uh, and they, they're, they're kind of a little bit incoherent on it because sometimes they're saying it's turned women into cat ladies. That's one of their favorite expressions. So like <laughs> childless, kind of, uh, you know, g- women going into middle age, which they call cat ladies. Uh, and other times it's kind of, it's turned women into like really slutty and, uh, you know, uh, and so they're always either kind of too slutty or too, or, or holding too much back, you know? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and, and one of the big things they're preoccupied with too, is this idea of, um, you know, women wanting to mate up. And and so not being easily impressed, uh, and and the idea is that there is a kind of uh, elite of men who have massive amounts of sex, and then there's a very large number of men who have none or very little. And so, how did this become a political movement? Like, how did it go from <laughs> exactly. men complaining about not getting laid because of all the cat ladies to you know sort of electing Donald Trump? I know there are a number of steps, but um, <laughs> in between, but. It does like when you describe it like that, I'm like, it just sounds like it just like a corner of a of a bar, you know, and yet it's like the world we live in. Like, how did that happen? I guess it's it's like, you know, what would have been in the manosphere originally was like, you know, the idea of being of the red pill, uh, which is the the Matrix uh, movie metaphor that that the alt right uses now about race, you know, and about, you know, kind of um, realizing that there that you live in this system of kind of liberal uh, lies and so on uh, the 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 big kind of uh, reddit forum in the manosphere was called the red pill and um uh, but it also contained things like men going their own way which is a male separatist movement uh they they decided that women had become so intolerable under feminism that they would rather be male separatists and um, 
strike out in their own kind of, you know, and there was also a strange self-helpy kind of streak in all of this as, as kind of nasty and sinister as it often was uh, and is. Um, th there was always a self-help element in that. I always felt that, you know, they they were kind of like, OK, your life is terrible, but you can get into weightlifting and uh you know or or you live in a you live in a kind of feminized um office environment where you're just in a in a cubicle and this isn't how men are supposed to live you should quit your job and go live in the woods and stuff like that you know so that there was always that kind of a, a bit to it it was a um a kind of a, a world of really despairing people i guess who were trying to um you know, and it was a counterculture as well. Uh, but how you get from that to Donald Trump, I mean, I suppose it just is a reflection of um, a building sense among a lot of men, and maybe even a lot of the men who would have voted for Donald Trump wouldn't have even been in this online world. But, but I think the fact that a lot of men were e either thinking the same thing, or maybe even in some very vague way thinking the same thing, um, that essentially uh, there was a kind of chaos in the world of gender and that they didn't like it. You know, Angela, I'm really struck, and I don't know, maybe this is completely crazy, but when I hear about what seem like small groups getting this outsized amount of power, I'm both reminded of, you know, I'm in my 50s, I grew up in Britain in an age when, you know, and an age and in an area where, Socialism was, you know, the the mainstream option, mm. and as as socialism as a you know electoral option has become less uh, favored around the world. I mean, even despite you know nearly seventy year olds like you know Corbyn or or Sanders, uh, there seems that, that that seems like okay, so that's not an option, you know. Socialism and the, the communism is gone, so there's nothing to the on the edge to kind of keep us in these. In, inside the guidelines. I don't know. I can't quite make the connection, but it does feel like there's, there's, you need some kind of myth, not mythology or ideology. And when you don't have a political ideology or one that we has traditionally been recognized as a political ideology, there's a drawing to another kind of, of, of viewpoint, another ideology, which in this case seems to be, you know, that men are being feminized by women like is that crazy no, there's definitely a connection there i think i mean you know traditionally the workers movement was something um you know that that brought men together and the, and in which mm. uh men who typically worked together as well uh found a kind of solidarity and uh, were able to have influence on the world, to, you know, together. Um, and uh, even like the early trade unions all use the language mm -hmm. of like brotherhood and stuff like that. Um, uh, but also it's an end of history thing, too, I think. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the the idea that was around even, say, like when I was in college was very much that people really did believe Fukuyama's idea of the end of history, that basically everything had been resolved and liberal democracy was the only game in town and that's all there was ever going to be. Even though everyone uh, everyone disagreed with it, like everyone on paper used it as a something to argue against. But I, I actually think looking back on some intuitive level, everyone actually kind of thought it was right. Like uh, even socialists mm -hmm. thought it was right. They knew that like, all, everything now seems off the table. 
Um, and so mm-hmm. then the, you know, well, that that's definitely over because now politics is completely crazy <laughs> again. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but I think these guys kind of were trying to think their way out of something like they, they felt that they didn't like how things were, but there was no telos and no sort of like movement, uh, to really join. So instead it was just this very negative, uh, you know, typically very hateful kind of um, type of political discourse where it was, you know, they were grasping at, at anything that might be a solution, but it was primarily about the, the, their hatred of contemporary society. And they're just saying, we don't like this. Uh, and we don't believe that this is progress. So it's interesting because I, I love that whole description and, but, but the, the, that their solution was so backwards looking, or at least we've, we've talked about it that way, like regressive, like we just want women to be women and men to be when, and we want the old roles to be restored and we want the old power structures and hierarchies to be restored. And yet I have to say some of how they behave and what they do feels very 2017, Mm -hmm. like the memes, the joking, the gaming, like there are elements of it. This sort of like the one that always gets me that you wrote a lot about in your book is the kind of attacks on sentimentality. I always found those really interesting as the memes, like as opposed to just PC culture, Mm -hmm. like we all know they make fun of social justice warriors and everything, but like why sentimentality? Like what is that about? And what is that kind of jokiness, you know, that kind of transgressive Milo Yiannopoulos jokiness that actually does feel sort of ironic Mm -hmm. and of the moment? And how does it fit in with this very like regressive ideology that they're they're clinging to i suppose they feel that that the attack on sentimentality is about uh the idea that the culture has been feminized and that they're trying to battle that through a kind of a counterculture basically and maybe remasculinize it in a way but it's almost like the first step to doing that is to smash the taboos and um, and to bring back a kind of masculine spirit of banter and irreverence in, into culture. Um, and, uh, and I guess, um, you know, th- they're not people you would think of as having any of the traditional masculine virtues, you know, they're, they're, they're not, gen- they're not gentlemen, you know, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I, but so their whole idea is almost like we are already, we are not just people who are battling against the destruction of, of the culture, but we are also products of that. Uh, you know, so it's almost like these are guys who spent mm-hmm. a long time on like forums on 4chan on things like that, watching a lot of, um, pretty extreme porn and being celibate and being incredibly angry. And so they're they're they realize that like they, you know, often used to refer to themselves as beta males. Um, uh, and so they kind of realize that they have this low ranking position in this pecking order. And uh, yeah, it's it's very much about um, uh, de- trying to defeminize the culture. But see, to me, the, the, the thing that I most respond to in that other than just like, oh, <laughs> is, is like, how, how can that be become more popular? Like, what is the appeal of that beyond a group of angry people. I mean, does anger, can anger be appealing if you don't, you know, beyond a certain small group who are just so mad? Like, does anger 
but attract maybe it's more not anger. Such a small group, right? Yeah. I think that I mean, yeah. Or did we underestimate how many people are angry about the disruption of the pecking order? Right. Mm. I mean, that's the other explanation. Mm, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I think the the appeal is actually not so much in the anger. Well, I suppose being able to vent it, but uh, the appeal, I think, is in um the anonymous internet being able to go in there and say whatever you want with no consequences and therefore you know mm. being able to speak maybe more truthfully um and uh in the online world it's kind of interesting because in the online world you have the de-anonymized internet we'll say right where twitter and things like that where there's a level of kind of personal branding going on it's very much about you know, uh, or even Facebook, it's very image oriented as well. So you have all these women taking like pretty selfies and like, you know, really uh, enjoying these kind of image based, uh, you know, uh, uh, forums in which there's nothing or platforms in which, you know, whatever you're saying has to, in a way, present a positive version of yourself. And then, mm-hmm. then you have this de- you have this an anonymous internet counterculture, which is much more male dominated, which is about guys who are pissed off with all these, um, you know, uh, uh, women who won't, who are not interested in them or who are, you know, not behaving in the way they would like. But also it's a place where you can be really nasty. You can say whatever you want. You can post the grossest thing you can possibly find. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the weird kind of dark underbelly of the rest of the internet, which is much more feminized kind of space. I have to say that when you talk about the anonymous uh, internet, it reminds me of how we've been so puzzled by elections recently in many places around the world. Like, how did he win? How, how, how did that outcome, you know, happen? And maybe it is another expression of anonymous, no consequences. Like, I'm not telling you, polling isn't all that reliable anymore because, you, you know, you're, you're not telling people, you know, you can't say out loud what you really feel, mm. but you can make that X in the right box when you get into the polling. Day. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, elections turning out, whether it's Trump or Brexit or whatever, uh, or just the rise of the populist right in general. Um, I mean, Le Pen didn't win, but she did very well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, yeah, polls have been telling us for years that basically popular opinion is more to the right uh, of, let's say, the media. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you, for example, you know, the, 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 um, figures of like mass immigration, for example, that most of the West has had in recent decades, if you write a column saying this should be reformed, done away with whatever, uh, that would be considered an, a somewhat extreme opinion, but we know that it's actually quite a popular opinion. Uh, and so that's mm-hmm. something that's you know, kind of difficult to deal with um, because it's almost like we have this media world and we know that it doesn't really represent the the mainstream of society. Um, you, in your in your book, you 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 do. I, I don't know that you place the blame on sort of liberal performative politics, but you certainly use that term or imply that the left and the left's behavior online kind of feeds right into all of this anti-PC. It seems like a kind of vicious cycle. Is that what you think? Like, what, what is what is the left's role in this whole drama? Or I shouldn't say the left, I should say the online kind of liberal performative politics, I think, is the term that you use. And the t- or the Tumblr community, mm. even more specifically, maybe. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. style of uh, politics that I kind of associate with Tumblr is one that, you know, um, 
where they talk about things like drinking male tears, you know, uh, like, and they really kind of revel in, um, in being kind of horrible about men, you know, and, um, uh, and that's part of the, the style of the thing. And, you know, it's all about kind of like, um, uh, um, well, let's say body positivity kind of politics and uh, what else kind of, um, yeah, just be, being uh, some in some way kind of knowingly kind of uh, uh, nasty about um, those who uh, rank higher in the pecking order in terms of identity. Uh, now, I mean, the thing is, in terms of do I blame them? Like, it's more that I would think, you know what, if you go into the outside world and you get off the internet, the, these people are not, like, this is not representative of how things actually are. The fact that there are a lot of young women, you know, saying that they want to drink male tears on on these kind of platforms, that that's not actually how most women think, and it's not really how any of these women probably are in real life. Uh, but because of this is an online culture war, um, both sides are kind of looking at each other. So the, 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 the sort of reactionary guys are looking at these women in these kind of spaces who appear to not uh, appear to be kind of uh, glorying in the sort of like uh, men's uh, decline uh, and who seem to hate men. And they're saying, look, this is what this is what feminism has done. This is what contemporary society is. Uh, these you know, we don't want women to be like this. And and both sides, in a way, are kind of like whip themselves up into this position, uh, into this really extreme position of almost a panic about the way they perceive the other side. Uh, and in both cases, it was a distortion, you know, uh, and, and something kind of not terribly representative of the world outside of the internet. Angela, how how has the Manosphere changed in the last year? Do they have any sense of victory or is it sort of more of the same? I think that the first kind of big thing to happen was it becoming expressly political. Like in the beginning, it was mm -hmm. very much about dating and pickup artists and a vague sense that you know they didn't they didn't fit somehow you know the co contemporary kind of like dating world and stuff like that was very making them very unhappy and very you know angry and stuff like that but it wasn't very political and then i think the next step was that it became political they started making links to more explicitly political things and then the next step after that was that they started making the connection with race um and you started to see in all of the 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 manosphere all the different forums across pollinating from the the other forums that were and the other little like political subcultures that were starting to think about race and immigration and things like that so for example they started to make the connection between Western men being emasculated and the, let's say the cult of masculinity in political Islamism and jihadism. So it was very much like, right, okay, so we are being emasculated and weakened and the, these threatening figures on the outside are very, um, you know, masculine and they, they have, their, their women are playing a traditional role and so on. 
Right. That's why you always see you. You often hear men from this from this world say things like, you know, there's one thing I admire about Islam. Like even though they're they're, they're our enemy, you know, so there's this thing I mm. admire about them. So race kind of blew up at some point, right, where people weren't necessarily committed which side they were going to be on. It felt like race kind of zoomed into this world pretty quickly. Um, and in our, you know, on our on our part of the world around Charlottesville, it was like suddenly everyone was forced to reckon with how racist is this subculture. Do you have a sense of, of what how race scrambled this world and how racist the subculture is? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's pretty racist. <laughs> um and uh, and because basically, you know, so that the, these guys are on these forums all the time and they were they were uh, first of all identifying what they saw as the problem, which was women and then it was feminism and then it was, OK, well, where did feminism come from? So then it became, I suppose, egalitarianism, liberalism. Um, and then it was very much about, um, you know, the the white uh Western, like uh, professional uh, women being childless and the general low birth rates. Uh, and then it had to be, well, hang on, who's having the low birth rates? It's white women. Uh, and then, it, and then, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, I guess the, the ideas of, of the alt-right kind of fit in very neatly or presented themselves as a kind of um, a theory, I suppose, of how to actually, put all of this together and see it as part of some wider issue. Uh, so, uh, and of course the alt-right also offered that kind of revalorization of masculinity, um, uh, which was very much about pride and, and so on. Like one topic I remember coming up quite a bit before they all became more like explicitly alt-right and kind of race focused was that they started saying, okay, instead of just saying like, Western men are emasculated. They started saying, well, it's really white men, isn't it? You know, because they would say, actually, black masculinity is still fairly robust or whatever, and and that it's really white men that are being emasculated. And then it was, well, why is it white men who are? And, and why is it, you know, um, is this not just about the, the West as a, a category of a sort of rich block of the world, but as something more than that? And then, of course, uh, th there was another bit too, which is that they were always very interested in kind of gene genetics and and kind of uh, evolutionary psychology and almost like social Darwinian explanations for social phenomena. So at the very beginning, it was like feminism is teaching young women through academia and so on that everything is socially constructed. Uh, and And then they said, you know, the real truth that they're hiding is that actually everything is the opposite to that. Everything is determined by nature. Um, and in a way, the kind of, um, what would you say, like almost the fundamentalism of the social constructionist people allowed that space to open up because instead of just saying, we know that so much of human behavior is socially constructed, they, it had to be everything about human behavior is socially constructed. And, and then, I don't know, it, 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 it opened up a, uh, it made it feel like more of a red pill moment when you think, oh, my God, maybe the world isn't maybe social phenomena has a, a basis in, you know, genetics or whatever. Um, uh, yeah. So it, so all of those things actually do kind of fit together quite neatly, if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's clear, like how you get gender hierarchies to me are easier 
I'm not saying they're true. I'm saying they're easier. They're kind of easier to make an argument for than race hierarchies. Like race hierarchies seem like a, just an obvious construction. Like they're different at different moments in history and um, different places in the world. Like how the race hierarchies got kind of piled onto the gender hierarchies is, it seems to me, extraneous. Yeah, or, yeah, but I, I know, guess extra. Yeah, it was. But I mean, this like is why, why. Like I think initially it was the gender stuff. Like even if you go back and look at something like the game, which is pretty harmless compared to the the kind of really nasty world that came out of the pickup artist thing online. Um, even then though, there was still a sense that like people are motivated, women in particular are irrational and kind of the way to understand them is that they're, they're unconsciously motivated by these um, evolutionary genetic sort of drives and if you can tap into those then you can almost short circuit like you can you can you can get past the 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 trying to deal with any any kind of rational being and instead you can kind of almost game them you can you can hack them you can trick them into feeling certain things uh, and so from the very beginning even when it was not it didn't have a particularly nasty character they always believed in the uh, in that evolutionary psychology stuff, that was their their approach. What uh, what has the reaction been among these people to the current sort of post Weinstein moment that we're having here about sexual harassment and sexual assault? Oh well, they're gloating like crazy because to them it's like um, here are all these liberal guys in this in this very in Hollywood and stuff like that. And in, uh, and there's been a whole bunch of, uh, um, you know, other cases of like, yeah, so it's Hollywood, it's the media, quite a few left-wing kind of journalists, comedians, different things like that have, uh, you know, been found out through it. So they're, they're actually, they think it's great. I mean, uh, they know, of course, of course they don't actually care about any of the women, uh, who, but, but they're just delighted to see these, uh, what they would regard as like virtue signaling male feminists kind of fall on their own sword. There is also another element to it, which is that they're, uh, they were, they were, um, very, uh, preoccupied with the idea that, well, early on, with, with the Weinstein and stuff that they were very preoccupied with the predatory men being Jewish. Uh, because of course the, the, there's a pretty significant anti-Semitic uh, streak in all of this as well. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Very selective. Right. Um, I mean, just very selective in the sense, <laughs> sense they're just pl- you know, there are conservative men who've been called out, but you do notice on Breitbart tweets and all right tweets, they tend to sort of, there's like a thousand. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And, but um, but I mean, for example, some yeah. there, there's some alt right guys who um, uh, actually wrote uh, stuff about how I I had failed to um, sufficiently kind of call out uh, various kind of left wing uh, writers who uh, had you know got gotten accused of um, you know sexual harassment and different things. Uh, in, in that me too sort of moment. Um, and of course they don't care about the women. Like <laughs> they don't actually think that these are, are sex criminals or they don't, you know, they, they, they're, they're not really co- concerned. And, and they know that, I mean, they're kind of almost doing it with a smirk, you know? Right. Like some of the behavior that, that these men have engaged in is actually stuff that would be advocated on these forums. Totally. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm having such a like, 
antediluvian reaction, like shut down the internet. That's basically my conclusion. Pull out the plug. <laughs> I do. I, 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 Pull I the feel plug. the same. I feel the same. I, I actually do wonder if um if there's some serious uh, damage being done. You know, like we all think um uh uh you know the like uh, Oscar Wilde said you know that uh if you want to you know know how a man truly feels give him a mask and you know even i suppose the whole idea of democracy is kind of based on you know being able to go into uh, a booth and 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 vote in a in a, a secret way um so in a way i don't think we're really dealing very well with the with the contradiction or we're not really able to think through the contradiction which is that uh when we have you know created this space that is taboo breaking and transgressive and that allows people to speak it, it, you know to, to speak honestly and so on it's actually incredibly horrible and um <laughs> and it's produced something so ugly and um uh, yeah i i haven't actually i don't think people have really thought that through very much because it sort of feels like the next step would be to say right does that mean we need to start imposing social taboos more or like, you know, does that mean we actually need to sometimes keep secrets to ourselves or, you know, maybe we don't want to transgress every rule that's out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the mask, you know, the mask has always served a certain social purpose, which is that you get to wear it once or twice a year, um, not every yeah. day <laughs> for hours of a day. I mean, that's why the mask is useful. Like, yes, maybe there are secrets that you can let out every once in a while, you know, at the costume mm. party. Um, anyway, um, Angela, it was so wonderful and excellent to have you on. Don't you guys feel like you learned everything about everything Absolutely. now in this last 20 minutes? <laughs> yes. That was really, really I feel great. red-pilled. <laughs> um, I feel red-pilled, exactly. I see the other side and how it works. Thank you. Um, but thank you so much for coming well, on thank to you. talk to us. All right, that was Angela Nagel, author of Kill All Normies, an excellent book which you can find on Amazon, at your local bookstore, wherever you get your books. Buy it for someone for the holidays. Kill All Normies. It's a very uplifting <laughs> gift. Well, let's jump into sex panic. This term is popping up more and more, both from the right and the left. It's a worry by conservatives and by some liberals that as we delve more into moral outrage, we are excessively focused on all things sexual, exquisitely attuned to all sexual crimes, uh, where once someone has a scarlet letter, we kind of want them to be obliterated and disappeared without really much of a trial. And so innocence might get caught up in the trap. Uh, now, before we talk about this in relation to the news, because this helped me a lot, can we just define our terms? Like a sex panic is a real thing. This is not like a me media. I mean, there there have been sex panics, these kind of moral panics, cultural responses. They tend to be very punitive, but mostly they they entrap queer people and women. Like I said, like we have had sex panics in the past, right? Yeah, certainly like in the 1950s around, you know, I guess the, the Red Scare, uh, there was a huge focus on homosexuals. Uh, which may or may not have been like one of those scapegoating tactics or really may have been a response to fears of, you know, external invasion uh, or something like that. And I guess it, and certainly at other points, uh, women's uh, freedoms have led to what other people have led to what people have described as sex panics. And what like are, what are the trials have been? Yeah. I guess I'm struggling a little bit with like what, what actually results in a sex or what the results are of a sex panic, 
you know? Like, I mean, I think it's like you need like a false exaggerated threat. Like that's the first thing we have to answer. Like is it's sort of there's we exaggerate the threat and then we respond punitively. That's how I understand a sex panic to work culturally. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like we, we create a hu- we create the sense that there's a huge problem, you know, like child child abduction is not a sex panic, but it, it has the mm-hmm. elements of a sex panic. It's a one that's been, you know, that there's a sort of singular case or a couple of cases. And then you create a kind of cultural fear that lasts for a long time that it's everywhere. So it's like homosexuals are in your school. They're here. They're everywhere. They're taking over. We really have to take this crime extremely seriously. Um, and, and then you have to respond punitively. Like the answer to that problem is, you know, throw them in jail or create a set of rules or something like that. I think that's how a sex panic generally, that's the mechanism of a sex panic. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so now let's discuss whether we're we're (laughs) in a sex panic. Um, So you take take the first, like, let's take the first part, like false, exaggerated, ill-defined moral threat, you know? Well, this to me gets to the heart of it, right? Mm -hmm. So... So in the sex panic that we were just talking about, homosexuality is not, in fact, a crime, you know, and but but um, sexually assaulting women is it is just on its face bad. Um, And so for us to be reacting as if it's bad, I think is (laughs) is like a totally proportionate and correct reaction. And I think, you know, what uh, our friend Avi Zendelman called Armageddon, I mean, it does feel like there's this absolute deluge of, you know, Who's the accused? Who's been accused today? Who's been fired today? All these kinds of. It's not because suddenly uh, everybody's doing it. It's because suddenly the sin is being recognized, and sin is clearly not the right word there, and is very weighted. But this bad, this it's like bad acts are finally being treated with the weight that they deserve. They're not happening now necessarily. They have happened in the past, and finally, some of them, many of them, and finally, they're getting the reckoning they deserve. Is how I see things. What do you think, Hannah? Well, um, of course, you know. I mean, we started with a bunch of ogres, you know, the sort of old patriarchy entitled to women's time and bodies and abuse of power and good riddance to that era. Like, mm-hmm. may they all be on call forever. So, yes, it does feel like a certain type of person is on call, a certain type of behavior now and forever. And that's a genuine crime. I think in in the difference is the question here is not whether this started as a sex panic, but whether it has the potential to tip yeah. into a sex panic. Most people are afraid of this topic, by the way. Like, we did a lot of reading around it. And I would say the only person who is actually engaging in it in a real way is Masha Gessen at The New Yorker. Everybody else is just sort of sort of lightly mentioning. And I think on the left, lightly mentioning because Al Franken and Louis C.K. and Bill Clinton, like people who you admire kind of got caught up in it. So suddenly the left like entered their heads. Well, is this a sex panic? We like these guys. They're good guys. Like, so, so maybe this is a sex panic. And then they just kind of drop the topic. But Masha Gessen, I think because she's a foreigner, has dealt with like really oppressive regimes. And she kind of knows more she she can she can see a moral panic and dissect it pretty clearly mm. um has really dealt with this and so she for example in a story she wrote in the new yorker which noreen thank you 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 brought it to our attention um she sort of says like okay so it's cons- the con- the reason we don't like the homosexual sex panic is because the they're consensual right like you think society doesn't like this sex act but these two people are engaged in it consensually so she brought up a couple of examples particularly glenn thrush of the new york times who was put on leave it's like She's just saying we're sort of collapsing 
It's like we started with Harvey Weinstein. He's an ogre. He was allegedly behaving in a coercive and violent way with women. And now the kind of net has widened and widened. I think that's the the question. I, I'm not sure that this is true, but she is she seems to fear that we're in this moment where we will indiscriminately kind of catch people and just like banish them forever. And it can be all sorts of people that were headed in that direction. There was a case that Lena Dunham got involved in where a writer on girls was accused by a woman of sexual harassment and Lena Dunham and her partner, Jenny Connor, said basically like, no, like hashtag believe all women, but not this one. Like that's that guy didn't do anything. Now, how would they know? And the case hasn't really gone anywhere. But but um, but there are, you know, but but it is getting confusing and complicated. Like who did what? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the it always is complicated, right? When we're talking of accusations and, you know, that whole that old saw that I know I feel like I keep um, referring to when we have these discussions, which we've been doing a lot this year is, you know, better to let one innocent man go free, you know, better to let 10 guilty men go free than to convict one innocent man. And, you know, in her first piece on this topic, Masha Gessen had a riff on that, you know, it was like better to have 10 times less sex than to risk having a non-consensual sexual experience. And I almost had the feeling that Masha was saying that as if that was a bad thing. But I actually think she was. Yeah, but I was right. But I think that's actually a good thing, you know, and, and I don't I think that it is okay to to view those things differently i'm actually think yes it's better to have 10 men 10 guilty men go free than have one innocent man be convicted and i also think it's better to have 10 times less sex than to risk having a non-consexual sexual experience i think the arguments that she makes are interesting and important but i can't really go follow her argument all the way um you know she is extremely smart to point out that uh things that are uh, uh, um, that allegations that are of a very different scale are being treated yeah. differently. And I think, you know, the the media men list that circulated initially, that was one of the things that was so alarming to many of us was that like someone who, you know, was married, who was hitting on coworkers was treated with the almost the same um, in exactly the same way as someone who was being accused of, you know, sort of. Uh, like raping know, three women, right? Raping that three, was one yeah. of them on the list. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and so that conflation, I think she's you know smart to point that out. Um, I you know I also am interested in her argument that she makes in her more recent piece um, that that our current moment sort of poses all women as mm. victims. Um, yeah. You know that's something that that. Um, has been somewhat present in the campus anti-rape movement, this sort of solidarity and victimhood and um, this framing of of ourselves in that way. And, and that can be troubling, too. I guess I just don't see the like, let's, you know, let's round everyone up and put a scarlet letter on their chest kind of thing happening. And nor do I see it. I think we're just a little bit too, I hope we're just a little bit too far down the road of sexual liberation for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I I do, you know, there's, I love Masha as a writer and I do see, and I feel like she, she has better vision than most people and she sees things before other people see them. And so when she points out that, the, you know, essentially there are unfair sex crimes, uh, she singles out, you know, the sex offender registry, which essentially puts people on a lifelong list, uh, which they can't get off, which really restricts their movements. Um, you know, civil commitment that essentially restricts people's, uh, has people locked up 
when they may not have been convicted of crimes. I would add uh, HIV criminalization, uh, which is extraordinarily unfair uh, and just not scientific. I mean, these there are things that exist that you can say, well, the, but those involve these marginal communities, uh, you know, that people can make. It's very easy to to sort of dismiss those people. Well, they're sex offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, I do see that edge of, well, look, we, there are people that we consign without, we consign to the, you know, essentially to captivity without due process. Um, and yeah, I hope that this doesn't lead to more of that, but to less of that. But I, I am a little worried about it. Wait, but it's already led to more of that. I mean, there's two questions from what, what, what do you, you guys say. So it's okay, but I'll, let me just address yeah. one of the things yeah. you said in the middle. Yeah. So it seems like what you're saying is that so so people are people are asking the question essentially, what are we losing when we create this yes. kind of yes. punitive atmosphere? And then people say, well, what we're losing is a kind of loose like flirtation, a kind of an ability to make passes and fumbling passes. Like that's what we're losing. And you're saying, good rid, I don't care. Like that Mm. 10, the thing that Masha says, sort of 10 sex acts, you know, you don't make that same calculation. You're saying throw away the 10 sex acts. There's no entitlement to be like flirty or sexy or whatever. It's too bad. If we lose that, that's fine. Well, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to get that straight. I'm not sure if I, I entirely feel that way, but I'm I guess I'm more more convinced by that side or more allied with that side. Um this woman Christine Ember had a piece in the Chicago Tribune that had a good sentence. Uh she said it's not that sex in and of itself is the problem, but the idea that pursuing one's sexual imperatives should take precedence over workplace rules, lines of power, or even just appropriate social behavior. And I do find that very Tempting, but you know, in the second piece that that Masha wrote, where she you know invoked the specter of the sex wars, I know I was on the other side from her in that. So maybe we are re recreating those lines. I guess I just reject the premise that we are necessarily losing uh, that sort of like potential for flirtatious energy. Um, I think that. This is a point that Rebecca Tracer made in something that she wrote. Women can tell mm. like when something is crossing a line and when it's not. And it seems like certain men just can't. But I think many men can tell. Like, I think you can have a totally like uh, essentially harmless office, office flirtation still. It's just there is a clear difference between sort of predatory and unwanted behavior and I don't I just I, I I don't think that, you know, uh, some men uh, suffering consequences for that is going to totally put the kibosh on anyone ever, you know, hooking up with a with a coworker ever again. But then aren't what we isn't what we're punishing like cluelessness? Like, aren't you punishing people for being like too stupid to understand social cues or like too lame to understand when a woman is not into them? I mean, you know, as um, Laura Kipnis always says, like every advance is an unwanted advance right. <laughs> until it's a wanted advance. Like you you don't know. Um, so there's to me, the fine line is like abuse of power. Like if someone's when I read these cases, I'm reading for 
is someone systematically taking advantage of their position of power. Now, I'm not saying I can tell the difference between these two things, but is someone systematically taking advantage of their position of power and sort of getting high off of it, you know, when it's absolutely clear that woman after woman after woman is like uncomfortable or rejecting him, or is he an idiot? Like, did he make, you know, two or three passes at a bar and right. he's just like a dumb, yeah. Like, see, I, I, see, I guess for clueless. me... I guess for me, cluelessness is no longer an option. Like, why are you clueless, yeah. bro? Oh, like, but that's the human condition, you know. <laughs> but but there are certain things that you have to be clue. You have to be clued, you know. Like, it's fine to be clueless about like I don't know how to drive. I'm clueless about driving. That's fine. But there there are certain things like about sexual propriety that you have to be clued in about. And that's what woke is. Like the term woke, I think, is designed to say what you're saying, June. Like cluelessness is not an excuse anymore. Like wake the fuck up. You know, I think that's what it means. Yeah. But I also think, Noreen, it is the human condition. So right. maybe what we get out of this is like a, like a few more people are not so asleep or clueless. I know we, we got to wrap this up, but just like one more thing. I will say the, se- the thing that bothers me is the second half of it that I think is happening, which is the punitive part Mm -hmm. and it has to do with the victimhood it's like our only response is a single response which is like set up rules and punish people and throw them over the edge of the cliff that's where i get a little weirded out like it doesn't seem right now at this particular moment that like i don't know they're like i don't know what the trials look like i don't know if we allow anybody to be rehabilitated or truly it's like we're just like everyone gets lined up and shot and it doesn't that's that kind of energy is what makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, it seems a little bit like what Masha described. You know, she gave an example of someone who is going to jail for 10 years for having consensual sex for, with 17 year olds, gay sex that he solicited that was consensual in a state where the age of consent in that state is 16. But the federal age of consent is 18. I don't know. It's a small, fine line. But um, but there is a way in which we are like we resort our only tool right now is like punishment Mm. like punish you know um yeah i think it's a moment where no one exactly knows how to react and i and i do agree with you i share those concerns i guess i just like cannot go all the way to seeing this as as like a kind of historical panic like you think we'll look back on it and i i think i probably agree with this if you take like 20 years of distance you'll look back on this moment and say that was a good moment. Like, it won't be recorded as a bad moment of sex panic and things out of control, even if there are edges of that. It will be recorded as a moment when things change for the better. As yeah, of today, so sorry, as of today, I would say that, but I don't know. We'll yeah, see in a few weeks. That my hope for this moment, so <clears throat> Rebecca Tracer has this theory that I really like that, that she sort of first brought up when she was writing about um, the way, the, the campus anti-rape movement, that in fact, one of the reasons that, that, um, these movements come about is because women are actually not radical enough in expressing their um, their anger at the ways that consensual sex can be bad and that the system is, is sort of set up against you. And my hope is that like this moment will be a loosening where people, you know, can figure out ways to express anger or um, frustration with with those parts of the system and not just like criminalize everything that feels bad. That to me is is like okay, if we get something good out of this moment, it will be that, that, that women, will, women will feel freed to, you know, talk about those gray areas without necessarily labeling something that it, you know, a crime when it may not be a crime. 
That would be amazing. Structural overhaul of sex. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. Hashtag structural overhaul of sex. Do it. Okay. Um, Enough of sex. It's just offending my sensibilities, all this talk (laughs) of sex. Let's move on. All right, our next topic, She's Gotta Have It, a new Netflix series based on the 1986 Spike Lee movie of the same name, in which Nola Darling, who's played by Dewanda Wise, is a young painter with three male suitors. The movie, when it came out, sort of put in our faces what it meant to be black, female, and an artist, and really into sex, in a society which did not approve or appreciate any of those things. Uh, The world is different in some ways now. So now we look at what is the TV show trying to tell us now at this moment. Let's listen to a clip. This is the opening monologue that Nola Darling gives at the very beginning of the TV series. Let's listen to that. I would like you to know the only reason I'm doing this is because folks think they know me. They think they know what I'm about. And the truth is, they don't know me. Anywho, if in the end this helps some other people out, then that's cool too. I consider myself abnormal. But who wants to be like everybody else? Not I. Some people call me a freak. And I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Or better yet, I don't believe in one-word labels. But what you gonna do? You feel me? All right, let's just take that opening monologue. How did that hit you guys? What did you guys think of that? I loved the show. I, I, and I think like all Netflix shows, it builds. Um, you know, I have not rewatched the movie since I watched it when it first came out in the, in the cinema. Uh, but I remember at the time thinking, oh, my God, talking to the camera like that, that's so weird. And now it's a convention that we're so much more used to, uh, either from like confessional zones of TV reality shows or, you know, YouTube or whatever. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's an introduction. It's 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 hard to to uh, to make you connect with a character in the f- opening sentences of a of a show especially like a 10 episode show um but i you know it made me smile just listen to it again then uh, i like i want to know that woman i hated the show oh okay. my god i think <laughs> and hannah didn't you well i kind of warmed to it we'll get there I, okay. that opening monologue was like i just didn't hit well, me right it's no. lifted that's because it's <laughs> lifted from the yeah so i it's lifted from the movie from mm-hmm. the 80s which you just yeah. rewatched. I, so i rewatched before i knew we were talking about it i'd never watched it before actually mm. so i watched it this weekend for the first time um and that opening monologue makes sense in the context of the 1980s right like the character nola darling was sexually adventurous in a way that felt, I guess, avant-garde at the time and that, that you know, some people call me a freak kind of speech makes sense for that character. But in the updated 2017 version, she's just someone who's like juggling a few people and that doesn't feel like I don't think anyone would call her a freak in for the Fort Greene of 2017. And there's all this kind of like, you know, signaling where, where, where Spike Lee is trying to like, you know, he, he gives her a septum ring because she's such a freak. Like, it just... To me, it didn't update quite right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that opening monologue was an instance where he was trying to retrofit. Like the whole first episode was very close to the movie, the original movie itself. Yeah. 
And you know why that's important, by the way? He wrote that one and other people wrote the rest of the episodes, mm-hmm. by the way. Well, not like, all of them. He, he also the wrote the last one. I mean, he wrote more than one episode. But yes, he did write that one. Um, is is because a lot of the tension, like the tension in the movie. By the way, can I just say I saw the movie when I was in high school, and Spike Lee was sit himself <gasps> was sitting on a mailbox outside the movie. Theater in <laughs> oh Brooklyn my god! Because he just used to do that. Like he used to pop up places, just like Mars Blackman, and just he was just sitting on the mailbox, and he didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I don't know if he was eavesdropping, but we were like, "Holy shit!" That's <laughs> oh my god, Spike Lee. That's amazing. <laughs> But um, and I and I uh, do the right thing. It's like, you know, totally mm-hmm. like legendary movie mm-hmm. in my mind mm-hmm. and how I see the world and how I think about like narrative and what's the ideal mm-hmm. way of unfolding a story. Mm-hmm. So I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, the, the the thing is in the movie and, and Noreen, you recently saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like necessary to the tension for her to actually be considered a freak like there's a lot of really tense moments in the movie both with like other black women and and like she she she's living kind of on the edge where i whereas i felt in the tv series that it didn't you're right it didn't update quite right she just seemed like an amazing hipster living in brooklyn who was absolutely beautiful and an artist and like who people would just be like admiring of her mostly yeah um i mean i get the parts of like gentrified brooklyn and how that's like enclosing on her and and money and i understand all these things but but it you didn't quite feel in your bones that she was walking a dangerous edge yeah and in the in the movie there's there's a sort of sequence where she herself questions her own behavior and that doesn't exactly play out in the same way in the tv series she's very certain of herself so I mean, it's hard not to read the TV series as Spike Lee sort of trying to make up for the sins that he committed in that movie. So Mm -hmm. he has said in interviews that, like, the one thing in his filmmaking that he would change, there's a there's a rape scene in um, in the original. She's got to have it. And um, he, I guess. Can you describe it just so we have it in our heads? Like why why he regrets it so much? Um, So it's a it's. It's one of her boyfriends um, is angry at her for sort of sleeping around with other men. And he comes over and gets very angry and sort of wants to and and says, you know, basically you are mine. And then and then rapes her. Um, and, and then she ends up with him. Right. Right. And so she and it's it's like a rape slash breakup. And then she sort of um spoiler alert i guess um she breaks up with the other men and goes to him and and says you know well i want to only be with you but first i want to try um you know celibacy and then then cut to the next scene where she's like well i couldn't be celibate I, you know i'm so happy with him so that was that was you know people were understandably critical of the idea that she would um be uh be with her rapist um and it's interesting i mean that's that's a transgressive transgressive notion to play with in the movie um and in the 27 so this feels like he is and the other criticism that people seem to make about the movie which which is understandable is that nola darling is sort of a cipher right like you you know she's just presented as as a type rather than a a real person and and there's great care to flesh out the the 2017 character um, there are like so many woke, like hashtag woke plot lines um, that that, you know, he he like wants you to know that Spike Lee understands why street harassment is bad. And, and Spike Lee doesn't think it's cool when men like tell their girlfriends not to wear short skirts. And um, Spike Lee does not like 
Uh, by the way, I like Spike Lee. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I, I like a lot of his movies. But, uh, but you know, he thinks it's bad that when want to get butt implants. Um, it, it just feels like so didactic. And he's like letting you know that he has evolved. Like he's fixed his woman problem. He's fixed his rape problem. You know, he the, the other thing that is different in this movie or in the in the um, TV show is that in the, in the movie, there's a lesbian character who um, sort of goes after Nola Darling and Nola Darling rejects her this time around. She has like a beautiful relationship with the lesbian and she's better than the men. It, it just like he's just he's the like politics of 2017 the the artistic politics of 2017 are such that you have to have like the correct take on something um and and that's what he's doing here that seems to be mostly the project is like telling us that like he, he's with it see i as somebody who really really enjoyed this series i don't mind that like okay. i can't really disagree but i loved spending time with nola mm-hmm. i loved nola I loved the sort of swooniness of it. Like basically, I, I love the the mood that's evoked in the show. I love the conversation with the past. I love that you know the series really is constantly engaging with the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prefer it when it's uh, overtly like when you kind of in the opening scenes in the opening credits, you know that you look at images from the movie, photographs from the movie. There's a point where the I almost don't. I guess I shouldn't spoil it, but there's there's a literal meeting of the past, mm. um, and I I enjoyed seeing um, I, the, essentially the struggles that weren't that struggly mm-hmm. of of a, a black woman artist in in a place where I walk through every day. Yeah, I mean, I also had an aesthetic reaction because this is my neighborhood. Basically, yeah. I live very close to where Nola Darling um, lives, and so watching the original movie. I like was just transfixed by it visually. Um, it's just incredibly stylish yeah. and also, you know, has the added frisson of being 30 years old. Um, and this, I was distracted by the aesthetics. It was like very, <laughs> like her apartment in the original is like beautiful and huge and bohemian. And this was like West Elm has decorated a beautiful yeah. and huge and bohemian uh, apartment. And yeah. a lot of, a lot of the sort of like gentrified Brooklyn felt very like in that, in that West Elmy kind of, vain to me and they and some of that stuff bugged me actually like i understood that he was this is like my hyper local brooklyn take (laughs) but i did i understood that he was trying to make a point about gentrification which is certainly true about the neighborhood but some of it was just off like there was you know there was this like neighbor who was meant to be the bitchy snobby white gentrifier who um the the young guy who's the mars blackman character the the spike lee himself character is like going into the brownstone next door and this woman is like what are you doing here like your type isn't meant for here and he is the most hipstery looking person in the most like stylish correct like gear of all time there's no way that woman would have that reaction she'd be like oh yes this is what i moved to the neighborhood for this incredible hipster you know right yeah the, the, the neighbor was a failure for sure yeah (laughs) <laughs> so I was going to call you defensive, but then you you rounded out like, pretty um, pretty effectively there, <laughs> like the Mars Blackman style, you know, because you're totally yeah. right about that. He's like yeah. a hipster bike messenger dude. Um, I am going to keep watching this, and the reason why is because for me the leap between like the first and then the second and third was huge. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so the big question for me, and reviews have hinted that the answer to this question is yes, and you can tell me, June. Not in detail, but in broad stroke, (laughs) so we don't spoil. 
does the series develop a more complicated relationship with Nola Darling, or is it just fawning over Darling no, no, Nola the whole time? So if, if the series is able to distance itself a little bit, be a little more critical, like see her in the situation from all sides rather than just like fully inhabit her beautiful lifestyle, you know, completely correct reality, then I think that would be great. Because as you said, Noreen, that would be a great leap is to go from archetype to kind of living, breathing human who works in Fort Greene. You know, it doesn't have to be total realism, but just like a little bit more of a complicated relationship with Nola. I would say I would say that it it offers a little more realism. Like it certainly expands the character and it kind of offers explanations uh, in ways that often, sadly, television doesn't. But I'm not sure it really complicates Nola. Nola is always a paragon. And again, I liked that. I want Nola to be a paragon. Uh, And I, so yeah, I'm in the bag so hard for Nola, (laughs) darling. Uh, And uh, so so yeah, com- a little complication, but it's not so much complication as realism. Uh, if you're looking for complication, I, I suspect that you won't be fully satisfied. Hmm. All right. Well, I can live with not fully satisfied. It is also incredibly beautiful. I will yeah. say that. It's just beautifully shot. It's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Almost too beautiful. Yeah, I think I will um, probably keep watching despite having, you know, an issue with it. Um, well, people inside and outside Brooklyn, our listeners, <laughs> if you... <laughs> sorry, if I'm watching, sorry. <laughs> No, no, no. I actually was interested in the kind of inner Brooklyn reaction, whether it would make you guys really defensive, because like the white Brooklyn ladies do not come off oh, well in this TV oh, series. So no. I was curious how you guys would react to that. Um, anyway, listeners inside and outside Brooklyn, if you have views, reactions to She's Gotta Have It, please share them with us. You can write us at doublexgabfest at slate.com. Before we get to recommendations, I just want to mention a new Slate podcast, which is fabulous. It's called If Then, and it's a podcast about technology, society, and power. Every Wednesday, April Glazer and Will Armas, two of Slate's fantastic technology writers, uh, talk about tech news. Uh, they they do a really great job of picking out the tech news that really matters. Uh, they also include fantastic interviews. Uh, They're both really great questioners and they've had outstanding guests. And they really treat technology not so much, they're not talking about gadgets, although they may do that at some point, but it's more about how technology influences our world and the ideas and the ideologies uh, that kind of pop out of that world and get into ours. So every Wednesday, Slate's If Then is available wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's do our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have for us? I've been reading uh, a book by Mary McCarthy, um, The Company She Keeps. I read the group years and years ago and read it and meant to go back to Mary McCarthy and never did. And um, this is sort of in the same way. It's a it's a collection of linked short stories um, sort of uh, about the inner life of um it's hard to tell, actually, if it's the same woman <laughs> or a series of women um, uh, sort of going through New York in the period between uh, the two world wars and um, having a series of bohemian adventures that you um, get her inner monologue on. I realize that doesn't sound like there's much of a plot, but it's she's just a, such a precise uh writer that it's an an observer of human nature that it is um 
really wonderful to be in the pages of this book. So The Company She Keeps by Mary McCarthy. I love that book. Mm-hmm. I want to read it again. That is a great book. It is a good book. All right. What I have, what I have for you is uh, this weekend I saw three billboards outside Ebbets, Missouri. Mm-hmm. The Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson. It's written by Martin McDonough. I, I think it's a brilliant movie. It's 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 um it's so I think it's so beautifully written and interesting. It's very kind of um uh, intense, intense the whole way through in a way which people find off-putting. There's also a big Twitter conversation going around over the racist cop and how the racist cop was handled and the rehabilitation of the racist cop and whether that ruined the movie. So there's a lot to talk about. But um, Francis McDormand is amazing. And it's a really, really interesting movie. And I wish you guys had seen it. I want to have like a teeny bite-sized conversation about the young women in the movie and whether that was just the one false note in it. But um, mm. I can save that for uh, another time. If, if either of you guys ever end up seeing it, I will I will run it by you maybe in a slate plus one time. Interesting. Okay. June, what do you have? I I think I've recommended this show before, but the final season uh, of Longmire uh, just aired on Netflix or just became available on Netflix, however you say that. And I love it so much. It's a, it's a show about a, a sheriff out west, uh, and it is so far from my life. It's so far from Brooklyn. It's so far from anywhere where I could live for more than five minutes. But I love it. Uh, even though I suspect that there are things about the treatment of the Native American community that somebody who know, knew more about it would like to be like, mm, you shouldn't like that. But I love it. Uh, and even though it's about a sheriff who's a dude and a real dude, too, uh, there are some really great female roles. Katie Sackhoff, who many people will know from Battlestar Galactica, uh, plays um, a deputy sheriff, I guess, Vic Moretti, and it's, she's fantastic in the final season. And really, I also love Ruby, who's the, um, I don't know what you would call it, kind of like the receptionist in the sheriff's office. Uh, but of course, she has a really big job. Um, she reminds me so much of Della Street and Perry Mason. And uh, I just really love Longmire. So give it a chance. Do you think I can, in my second life, can be a secretary in a sheriff's office? <laughs> that would be an amazing job. It would be so much fun and so interesting. I love and yet not that hard, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. It's great. Also, I don't um, suppose you right, need well, much money out there. So, you know, it's probably a living wage. Your ideas about out there, June, they're just going to get you in trouble over and over again. <laughs> Anyway, that's our show for today. Listeners, remember our call-in show. Please call in with your questions. We love your questions. It's 929-266-8195, 929-266-8195. We will play your questions and then answer them on the air. You all email us such great questions. Please call in and ask us on our phone line. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Daniel Schrader, also our intern, Daniel Schrader, to our (laughs) jack-of-all-trades, Daniel Schrader, who does everything on the show. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, That's our show for June and Noreen. I'm Hannah Rosen. We will talk to you again in two weeks. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. 
New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.